morning to the book of James, uh, I want to introduce um, a study through the book this morning. It always amazes me and uh, how providentially the Lord kind of directs and shapes and points the heart. Um, I had already been leading the children uh, in Sunday school class through the book of James. In fact, we're in chapter 2 there, so they're, uh, they're a little bit ahead of where we'll be as a church. And so uh, that was, uh, has been the case, and the Lord has certainly been uh, impressing my heart, uh, it seems, on those texts in James. And then uh, the last missions night, Brother Travis shared uh, from the book of James as well, and that sort of uh, reiterated uh, those impressions. And then uh, following up uh, the baptism this morning uh, with Caroline, uh, Blake was sharing with me how, how crucial the, the book of James had been in their life as well. So providentially, uh, I think it's, it's neat that we're introducing this study this morning on the heels of those things. It's a, I think it's a very, very needful. I think every book of the Bible obviously is needful in, for every generation, but it seems to me at certain times there, uh, there is a word from the scripture that is particularly relevant and urgent to a generation uh, that's you know, living at the time. And um, it's hard for me to imagine that one would be more practical and needful than the book of James, uh, because I think we had in America particularly have for a long time and many decades been able to fairly comfortably uh, carry the name Christian. Uh, generally, it was acceptable. There was a time when if you were anybody at all in the community and had any leadership at all and wanted any respect, you would attach yourself to a local church. Um, that has changed. Uh, that has changed a lot. In fact, uh, now, as far as your career and your social status goes, you may, it may be a detriment to be attached to a local church uh, as well. So there's really no better time for the practicality of the book of James to come to bear on Christianity. And I think it's especially in the face of what I've called and others have called nominal Christianity. Uh, James uh, is, is such a profound book. Uh, you've heard me quote Martin Luther's comments before. It's the epistle of straw. There's a lot of context behind that. I don't think Martin Luther was any way trying to dis dismiss it altogether from the canon of Scripture although he did have what I believe was a false uh, categorization of the New Testament writings into two tiers generally. Some have suggested more, but uh, I think as well he called it that because uh, his own battles uh, to come to the realization through, through Christ of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And, and for that reason, uh, and having been caught up in that works mentality, uh, I think he was particularly uh, chafed by the book of James because it does concentrate so much on faith working, uh, faith actually uh, being manifested in the way that a, a person lives their lives. And so perhaps it was that. Uh, I've also read that there was a comment that he made in regards to throwing Jimmy in the stove. Um, and that was, uh, I think, a reference to a contemporary event had happened in regards to warming a house. Someone had said that they would uh, throw the book of Jimmy James in the stove, that's the house be cold when their guests arrive. And I think he was coining that phrase, but one of his resistances against the book of James was that in his defense of justification by faith alone, uh, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church used the book of James to argue against him. And so it very quickly became hard for him to make his case uh, 
because they kept bringing the book of James to bear. Show me your faith by your works. Or Abraham was justified by works. They would bring that to bear against him. And of course he would argue against that, but it was the favored weapon, as it were, of his enemies. So I think that bred in him somewhat of a contempt for it. Uh, And that's my words, not his. But he never really disregarded it from the scriptures at all. So James, we believe the brother of the Lord is the author of the book, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, same James came to prominence in the Jerusalem church. In fact, in Acts 15, we read of the discussions and the letter sent back uh, by the hand of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. So James had come to a place of prominence there in that church. Uh, not only that is believed also to be one of the earliest, if not the earliest uh, epistle, New Testament epistle written uh, judged to be between A.D. 45 and 49 to some who would argue that it is uh, that it is a defense against Paul's doctrine of justification. Uh, if, it, if it is that early date of writing, it couldn't be that because Paul hadn't written that letter yet. And so now that's not to say that he wasn't aware of that teaching, but I, perhaps it was just to bring balance or just to, to address a particular issue in the church. So that early date of writing, I think, is important. Overall, these are my words. There are a lot of others who put it into different terms. But for me, the overall theme of his book together, uh, I think, is true faith. He's not discounting faith at all. In fact, I don't see any contradiction between the writings of Paul here and the writings of James altogether. Uh, Faith does work. Uh, And that's the essence of what James is saying here. Faith, true faith, manifests itself in the way that we live our lives. And so his audience, obviously, he mentions there to the dispersion of the 12 tribes, some translations, and some believe that to be the diaspora, which would go all the way back to the captivity, be Jews that were uh, taken away in the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivity. It seemed to have evolved over some time, uh, and it ultimately seemed to, by James' time, come to uh, speak about the church in general, primarily perhaps Jewish, but also including Gentiles. But it was the Christian church scattered abroad throughout the Roman provinces. So these are Christians who are not living in Jerusalem where James was. But that brought all of its own challenges. It was interesting as well to me to note this week in my study that uh, there are uh, some authors believe between 50 and 60 uh, distinct imperatives laid down in James. One author called them obligations, and I understand why he used that word, and that's only in 108 verses. So James is an intimately uh, practical book in regards to obedience. He's laying down imperatives, and that has the implication that these are commands, these are exhortations to which, uh, to which there ought to be a response of obedience. So the Christian can't say he's a Christian and disregard these altogether. So it, it is imminently practical. Uh, As I said, I think also just for present application, it is confronting in our generation what I believe to be nominal Christianity. Christians who might for comfort's sake moderate their convictions and even accommodate sinful influences not only within the church but even in their homes and even in their own lives. this is a book that calls that out. There is, no, there is no faithful accommodation for evil in our own lives or disobedience. There's not to be any of that in our lives. It is practical that faith would manifest itself in a life lived in obedience to the word of Christ. 
In fact, I think according to James' words later on, it is a, it is a letter addressed to, to prevent them from becoming exactly what he says, hearers of the word only and not doers. And I think in our own generation, it's going to be increasingly difficult to, be, uh, to get away with being a hearer and not a doer. In fact, if you're not a doer, you'll probably find some comfort in this generation. You might find a, a secure job and you might find a, a secure circle of friends if you're not a doer of the word. If you just hear it and take it to your heart and keep it to yourself and maybe in your home and around a small group of friends or, or maybe even in a small fellowship somewhere, you can find acceptance in this world to some degree. But if you become a doer of the word, primarily the Great Commission, but to go out and disciple others and to testify of the grace of God, if you become a doer of that word, if you embrace these truths and let them shape your life, then you'll be in such a contrast to a darkening world that you won't find any comfort in this world. And I think that's going to be a pushback against nominal Christianity. So let me read. Uh, verses, I want to read through verse in chapter 1 through verse uh, 9, or excuse me, 12, but I'll be concentrating in the early verses. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flower in grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask for your help this morning in the speaking of the truth, for the proclaiming of the word, for the exhortation. Lord, I pray as well for your help in the hearing and hearts of those who are gathered in this room today. No matter where we are in our Christian faith and our maturity, Father, we can always hear the practical instructions of the book of James Lord, we can always manifest our faith through works more clearly and more consistently. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you will bring conviction where it needs to be this morning in our hearts and bring encouragement where it needs to be as well. But most of all, Father, I pray that you would, through your word and through your spirit, draw us closer to you, that we might be found faithful all of our days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just looking through the passage slowly, really from verses 1 through 4, I may get to 5, if not this morning, this evening, but I was really uh, occupied with the thoughts coming from these passages. In verse 1, James identifies himself as the bondservant of God and of Jesus Christ. 
As you know, a bondservant is one literally possessed by another person and uh, possessed in their person and their property. To be a bond slave or a bondservant was to be the possession of another, and which also translated to anything that you had possession of or anything that you were utilizing, whether it be your own physical health, your resources, your money, your time, your property, everything that you had was under the authority of the one to whom you were enslaved, your master. That's, that's how James identifies himself. He is a bond slave. It also implies a, a stewardship of all that belongs to his master. Everything that James had when he identifies himself this way, Paul does as well, it belongs to his master. He is at best a steward of that and he ought to be a good steward of those resources, whatever they may be. But he is completely under the possession and control and authority of his master. It's not insignificant that James introduces himself this way because he is also, as a bondservant, one under the same obligations or imperatives that he's about to lay down. After all, he is a steward of this information, of this doctrine, of these spiritual realities. He is a steward of these. These are not his own. These are not of his own origination that he is not making others accountable to himself for their obedience to them. He is communicating now the exhortations and the imperatives from God. And as a bondservant, he is equally obligated to obey those things in his own life. So, so he is speaking to us as a fellow bondservant, all of us who have believed in Christ this morning. And to whom he's speaking here as brethren we are in the same position. We have an obligation. That's why I like the word used by the one commentator. He doesn't call him 60 or 50 imperatives. He calls them 50 or 60 obligations. If you are a Christian, you are a bond slave or a bond servant of Christ and thereby are not in possession of your own faculties and resources. You are under obligation to obey the words of the Master. I think sometimes we take that, I was sharing with the kids this morning, we take that to be almost optional for the Christian in some areas. Or sometimes we use the excuse of sanctification as a, as a justification for the lack of immediate, immediate obedience. We say things like, well, that's part of sanctification and I'm working on it. When at root, we're not working on it at all. And we're certainly not hearing it as a bond slave who is obligated to obey. No bond slave would keep his position very long if he were to hear the word of his master and to act as though it was optional as to whether or not that word was to be obeyed. He would not therefore be a bond slave. And certainly he would be reduced to something else in that household even if he did stay under the authority of his master. So it's not coincidental or incidental that James identifies himself as a bondservant. It's even all the more remarkable that James is the half-brother of Jesus. I was thinking about that early this morning. Uh, it is one thing for Peter and James and John to witness Christ and, and to believe in him as the Messiah. And we, we understand that James, the brother of the Lord, did not come to believe in Christ until after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he grew up with Jesus. <laughs> This is his half-brother. 
He saw him as a child. And you can imagine having a sibling, growing up with those siblings, even if you noticed that their behavior was exemplary, the idea that this is the God incarnate, the Messiah that's in my family and I'm eating breakfast with him and going to bed at night alongside of him. I can, I can understand the challenges for the brother of the Lord. But now, full circle through the Holy Spirit, now the flesh half-brother of the Lord Jesus is saying that I am bondservant to Him. I am an indentured slave to my half-brother who is Jesus Christ the Lord. Notice as well that He identifies His Master as the bondservant. He says in verse 1, I am the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We are commanded in Scripture, Jesus certainly says you cannot serve two masters, right? You will either forsake the one and cling to one or, or forsake the other. James knows that. James knows he can't serve two masters. So it's incredible that he would say that I am a bond slave of God and of the Lord Christ Jesus. If, if they are not the same, then James is trying to serve two masters, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He considers them as one. So it is a testimony from the brother of the Lord, the half-brother of the Lord, of the deity of Christ. He is indeed God in the flesh, and He, Christ, is my master. That's significant. Uh, Sometimes I, I know Christ is a brother. We can verify that in uh, Scripture. And there, are, there is intimacy and fellowship and friendship with Christ. There are all those things. But, but, the, but the idea of Jesus as, as our master suggests or has the idea that as a bond slave we are obligated to obey Christ, I think that needs to be weighed into the calculation as well. Yes, He is a friend and a brother and no one sticks closer in, than Christ in us. And there is wonderful fellowship and sweetness and intimacy and all those things. But He is still God. He is still Master. And we are still bond slaves in terms of our serving of Him and our duty and obligation to be obedient to Christ. James makes that very clear. James indicates by identifying his Master here that he himself is under the authority and under the accountability to that same Master. He is not obligating the believers to another Master. When he lays down these obligations and these imperatives, he is subjugating them to their Master to whom they are to live out their lives under that authority and then they are accountable to that same Master. James, by identifying that Master as his own, makes himself the same, under the same authority and under the same accountability. Let me say, Christians today, myself included, as a reminder, there is an accountability in regards to your obedience to the Master whom you have been bond, made bond slave to. I think sometimes we, we take grace to be too cheap, that it somehow covers or dismisses willful obedience. That is not what grace is for. Grace is to provoke in us, certainly to remove sins, but to create in us a new creation wherein obedience is enabled by that grace. And so grace, true grace, ought to be producing a greater obedience in our lives, not a disregard for obedience. That's not grace at all. It's not grace at all. That's at best cheap grace, if, if, if grace at all. And so James obligates himself to his master. 
As I've already mentioned, notice to whom he speaks in verse 2, and then also in verse 1 he says to the dispersion there, but in verse 2 he says to my brethren. It is the brethren, as I've already said, these are fellow bond slaves. These are, I believe, ultimately these are Jewish and Gentile Christians scattered throughout the Roman provinces. They were in cultures and societies perhaps indifferent, but perhaps also discriminatory and perhaps even despised these Christians, these unusual people. They were subjected in many cases to subsistence living or the very most, of men, the very most menial of tasks. And the ideal of, of a prosperous occupation was not even on the radar for many of them, So, which includes, I think, later on when he speaks to the poverty involved there. So these were people that had no, had no possibilities to climb the corporate ladder, especially as Christians, because their beliefs and their character and their practice alienated them from a culture in which they would be granted that. That is very mysteriously similar to what we see developing in America today. I think it, it may progress to the point to where our beliefs as Christians, our convictions, the way we live our lives will make us not candidates for climbing the corporate ladder. We may be assigned the most menial task in society and may through that lack of wages become subsistence livers, living off the land, growing our gardens, raising our chickens. We may be pressed towards that kind of existence. That's who he's writing to. These Christians who were scattered abroad, who were subject to those influences who in that subjection would be tempted in many ways to compromise or to back off or to be silent in regards to their convictions lest they be brought into some place of great discomfort and distress. James knows this and I think that's who he's writing to. Notice as well in this passage his first exhortation. As I've already mentioned, his imperative or as the author mentioned, the obligation he lays down. I think, I think this may be the most stunning and seemingly impossible obligation. But he says to them in verse 2, consider it all joy. Of all, the, of all the exhortations and obligations he lays down of those 50 or 60 and 108 verses, this seems to me almost experientially the most unreachable and even unreasonable demands. Count it all joy. In fact, the New American Version uses the word consider. It, it is to count it as. When you fall under these diverse trials and temptations, count it as, view it as, perceive it as joy. That's, that's incredible. In fact, the, the very notion of consideration has to do with the way that we think about it. Our perception of the trials that we're subject to. He's saying to them, of all the various trials you're going to go through, you have to have something happen in your understanding. You are to consider it or perceive it as joy. And that seems completely alien to our way of thinking. It is really a consideration in contrast to the circumstance. The various trials, the normal consideration would be to see the trial, certainly not take joy in it, but immediately take action or, or, or opportunities to alleviate and to prevent as much relief as we can in the suffering, if not eliminate it altogether. That is the natural consideration. 
If I enter into some trial, I want, to, I want to understand what provoked this. What can I do to eliminate the provocation? Or what can I do to minimize or, or mitigate the consequences of that particular decision? I, I'm thinking in my own mind and working out in my, all my own resources, intellect, financial, whatever they are, of how I can eliminate this trial or the suffering involved in this trial. James puts down something completely extraordinary because he doesn't, he doesn't refer to that at all. In fact, what he's asking us to do is go against the natural consideration when trials come upon us. Consider it all joy. I, I, hope, you've, I hope you feel how incredible that is. I mean, that's almost asking them for the impossible. In fact, it isn't asking for the impossible if they are relying upon his flesh. But he's not talking to fleshly people. He's talking to believers who are, who are born again. He's talking to the brethren. They have this capacity to understand something that will change what's normal. And in our generation, I worry that that capacity is present first. And I worry that as Christians, we've forgotten the realities by which that can be made possible in our own trials. I already see it. I already see what were once Christian organizations compromising or easing up or eliminating certain doctrinal areas that are offensive to the culture because they want to have a foot in the culture and some comfort and accessibility, as it were, to the culture. So they back away from the hard and the difficult truths of Scripture. And so we already see people accommodating. What they're doing is they're not considering it all joy. They're considering how to eliminate the suffering or the trial or the temptation. How can I find a way out of this? It's understandable because it's instinct. If I, if I consistently mash my finger with a hammer, I'm going to employ every resource I have to figure out a different way to do that, that I don't keep having the same consequence. I'm not going to count it all joy. It runs counter to our nature. When we suffer, when we have negative impact from decisions we make, our instinct is to adjust our behavior to accommodate or to mitigate the, the damages. So it's natural to us and not altogether unreasonable in certain circumstances. But, but he's saying here in terms of the Christian to count it all joy. Let me ask you this morning, identify in your mind and heart the trials you're going through right now. Is there anything in your nature that would cause you to think at this moment, joy, joy. It doesn't mean you're denying the difficulty of it or even the pain of it or the distress of it, but you're seeing the thing overwhelmingly and you're making a determined consideration in your understanding to declare over all of it joy. That's what James is calling upon here. Count it all joy. It is a joy, I think, not so much in the trials themselves, but the joy as the consideration to be taken in the midst of those. Well, we'll get to it, but there has to be some motivation for that. Otherwise, you're left with the trial itself. I guess you could be joyful that it wasn't worse. <laughs> But that's still a joy that's circumstantial. He seems to be calling us to a consideration of something beyond the circumstances. Something to view the circumstances through. And we'll get to that. So it is a joy not so much for the trials themselves or the pain that they are inflicting upon us, but a joy that understands them in a different kind of way. 
Notice as well that he says various trials, the various trials. James does not categorize the trials. He doesn't categorize them into some in which joy is to be the perspective and some where it's not to be. I'm struck that he says to count it all joy through various trials. It's a good thing that he said various because if he would have distinguished those specifically this day sitting in this sanctuary, we would have already categorized the ones in which we were to have joy and all the rest of them, we wouldn't have done that. We would have dutifully said, well, if you're to have joy in the midst of religious persecution, okay, I'll have joys for that. But he says the various trials, all the things that are brought against you or that you encounter in life and all of those things that are trying into your life and bringing pain in some cases, distress, emotional, physical or otherwise in the midst of all of the various trials that you're going through, count it all joy. If we were to stand up this morning and give testimony one at a time of the trial in our life today, the variety of those would be stunning. It really would be. Some would be physical things, physical ailments. Some would be spiritual issues. Some would be financial issues. Some would be relational issues. Some would be uh, professional issues. All the distresses that arise out of those things. We could all probably list off all the things that we're trying in our lives today. And I think James would say to us through this exhortation, in the midst of all of that, count it all joy. And I say all of that to illustrate or to magnify the overwhelming, stunning challenge of that being my experience, of actually being able to count it all joy. Our joys tend to be very much circumstantial. In verses 2 to 4 as well, I think he gives an indication here of joy's root. So he's not just saying, be joyful in the midst of all trials and just leaving us hanging out there. In fact, the whole book in some ways unfolds that, but I think he gets to the heart of the matter in the next two verses. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing, this is key to the joy, is there is a knowing that has to be in place that the testing of your faith produces enjoy, endurance. So that's an intermediate joy or a goal that is a provocation for the joy. In other words, the trials will produce endurance. Now I say intermediate because that's not where he's going. That's necessary to where we're going, but it ought to be producing a joy in us because the trials are what's producing endurance. So the product of the trial and the testing of the trial is endurance, or you might say patience or perseverance. I think there are actually two tests in trials. The first is the testing of the trials themselves. They hurt. They hurt. And our natural instinct is to eliminate whatever it is that's bringing about the pain. And so we set out immediately employing everything in our power to mitigate that pain or to eliminate that suffering or that trial in every way that we can. So the trial itself, the nature of the trial is, is testing of us. It is examining what's in us. It's, it's drawing out from us what is instinctive and what is to be grounded in faith. So it's, it's discerning of what's driving us and what's in our understanding. So the trial itself, though it may be varied, has that effect in our lives. We don't like trials. 
And I do think it's natural that we try to minimize or eliminate them with everything that we have. Our intellect, our strength, our, our, our financial setting, our social setting, our relationship. We'll utilize everything that is natural to us to try to eliminate or minimize the suffering involved in those trials. So the trials themselves are testing of us. Yours may be physical, it may be relational, financial, it may be whatever else, but that trial, that specific trial makes demands upon you that you are maybe even now working it out in your mind how to eliminate that difficulty. So it's testing you to see what's in you. What are your capabilities? How far will you go in your own strength at eliminating that trial? What are you investing in making things better in that situation? What's in you? And so the trials themselves test us. But I thought of this test as well. In regards to his, his mandate here that we count it all joy, that'll test you too. Now the trial is bringing its own test for in and of itself. It's demanding of us and it's drawing out of us every ounce of strength we have to mitigate or to find some comfort in the midst of it. But all the while, as the Christian hearing this mandate, we're trying to figure out how in the world am I supposed to feel joy in the midst of this? In fact... We think that that's why we're exhausting everything inside of us. We're trying to eliminate that, remove the suffering. Then we can be happy. Then we can find joy. So there's a second test. It is this, this, this striving to understand how I can endure this test and yet be joyful in the midst of it all. That's a test in and of itself. In fact, I think they're related I think they're absolutely related because I think it is the, the, the exhausting of everything within you that drives you to the understanding of the place where joy can come in the midst of it. As long as you've not gotten there yet, you're still exercising every power that you have and you're never going to find happiness. You're never going to have, find happiness because you have taken it upon yourself to be your own deliverance in that trial. You have taken it upon your own self to establish some sort of peace and some sort of comfort in the midst of that. So you'll never find joy. The trial, I think, ultimately tests the authenticity of and the purity of faith. And trials, instincts drives us, drive us to utilize, as I've said, every strength of our flesh to escape it or to minimize the suffering. We exhaust every human resource incre incrementally to find relief and comfort. They test faith in that we have before us often the option to abandon or moderate the practice, particularly involving the Christian faith and the faithful obedience to the word of Christ. Because we have before us this option, moderate your obedience and find acceptance in the culture. Be more modest about your convictions or be less public about your convictions and living those out and you can find an accommodation in the culture. For the Christian, particularly under, under persecution and trial because of their faith, that option is ever before us. You get to make it tomorrow. When you go out into the world and you, you find difficulty and acceptance among peer groups, maybe where you work or in relationships you have, the option is before you. You can find acceptance. Just moderate some on your convictions or the expressions of your faith. Just keep it to yourself. After all, it's between you and Christ, right? 
I mean, those options are ever before us. So the trials examine or test, as it were, the authenticity of faith, but then it has the purifying effect on faith as well. In other words, the faith may be real, but there may be all sorts of things you've added to it that will that be cast away or proven not sufficient in the trial. And what I mean by that is that sometimes authentic faith can have as a part of it or added to it presumption. There are those who think that because they are living the Christian life, they are somehow guaranteed or assured that God will protect them and guard them against difficulties and trials that come against them in their lives. That's presumption. That's not the authentic faith. I mean, there may be authentic faith underlying that, but you've added to it some presumptions. There are others, the prosperity gospel preachers uh, capitalize on this, but they assure people that because you're a child of God, you are granted and guaranteed prosperity. Just sow your seed. And there are many who are going through that and they sow their seeds and they remain in poverty and the poverty for them is a trial. Well, if the trial had its perfect work, it would filter out that which is not authentic faith and they would abandon that presumption. So it has two effects. It authenticates or it demonstrates the faith as to whether or not it's authentic and it identifies and it purifies authentic faith of all that we add to it by expectations that are not justifiable by the Scriptures. And if you think about your own life and you ask yourself, what are the things that I am expecting that I have no biblical right to be expecting? Are you expecting good health tomorrow? Do you think a cancer diagnosis with the diagnosis tomorrow terminal would be injustice an injustice of some sort? Do you do you are you assuming that your obedient life guarantees that you will have many many years on this planet and many opportunities to share the gospel? Those things are blessings of God and they certainly are mercies that God extends often, but I don't think I have any guarantee that I'm not going to be diagnosed with cancer tomorrow. That is an expectation and a hope and perhaps a mercy that I I would desire, but it is not a part of authentic faith in that I should de- demand it or expect that it should be mine in some way because I have no biblical scripture or truth that makes it mine to be, be assured of. And I think that's one of the things that it does. I say intermediate because he says in verse 4 that this endurance... Uh, has a perfect result. By the way, the way that produces endurance is that it goes through systematically all that you've, all the resources that you've brought against this trial. And systematically it goes through everything you throw at it and it throws it off as ineffective. You tried your intellect, didn't work. You tried your money, didn't work. You tried your personality, didn't work. Every resource that you've utilized to try to mitigate or to minimize your suffering in the trial has proved futile in in accomplishing what you hoped it will do. So in the process, you're casting all those things out and concluding these are not sufficient. And as you do that, what is sufficient, authentic for the joy that he's commanding us here is being more and more exposed or coming more and more to the forefront. I'm not depending on my intellect for my joy. I'm not depending upon my craftiness or my understanding or my, or my cleverness for my joy. These things are proving insufficient for my joy. And by, by discarding them, I'm narrowing, narrowing it down, as it were, to what is necessary which is what essentially the whole book of James is about, is faith. So 
We can, enjoy, we can rejoice, verse 3, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. So when I'm under trials, and the trials as difficult as they are, and as much as I may desire in my heart that the suffering be removed from me, I can, I can rejoice because I know that through this trial and through the merciful hands of the God to whom I belong, this trial is effective, as Paul says, at, at bringing about in me the fullness of the new creation. It is necessary to my sanctification and therefore good. It is to my good in the hands of a merciful God. So when I'm under trial, I can rejoice because I know that through the trial, my master is producing in me endurance by causing me to reject all that is not faith. And so I can take joy at that. We're not suffering randomly. We're not victims of the devil. As Christians, we are under the sovereign hand of our gracious God and, and he may release the devil on a leash to sift us as he did Peter, but it is all to the good uh, ultimately and to the fullness of joy for the believer. So when the trials come and the trials that you're in right now as the Christian, if they are driving from you self-sufficiency, you are getting closer and closer to what real faith is. And because of that, you can be joyful because it is producing in you an endurance. But he doesn't stop there in verse 4. I thought it was interesting, and he said, let endurance have its perfect result. The idea I'm taking from that is, is there is a possibility that the endurance itself might cause me to become bitter. It might be that my deployment of all my strengths and their failure has caused in me a bitterness and a, and a resentment and a cynicism in regards to suffering. So I just finally at the end of the day out of complete powerlessness just resign myself to the fact that I'm going to suffer the rest of my day. And that is a, not a joyful reaction. That is a resentful resignation to the providential hand of God in my life. That's not what he's commending here. He says in the midst of it, count it all joy. That's not joy. It's not joy at all. So he says here, don't let it push you to that extreme. Yes, trials are difficult. Yes, they hurt. And yes, it's frustrating when we employ all that we know to try to eliminate that. And nothing seems to work. And don't let it drive you into despondency and to, and to resentment and depression and solemn resignation or some sort of... Some sort of bitter resignation. Rather, let it be a source of joy in that through this perseverance, through this preservation, God is casting off all that is not faith. Let, let the endurance go on to what it is designed for, which is exactly what I've been describing. He says, let it have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the result of the endurance and the reason we can be joyful in trials that are producing that is that, the, is that the result of that endurance ongoing is the reaffirmation of authentic faith and the refining and purifying of that very faith. So in the trial and in the enduring of the trial, our hearts are encouraged because we have evidence now that we belong to Christ and our joy is, is coming more and more singularly from Christ Himself. And therefore, we are finding out the purity of the faith in our own hearts. That's what endurance is for. That's what it's bringing about in us. And so in a very strange way and in, a, in some ways in a trembling way, I thought to myself, if that's true, then therefore I ought to rejoice in every trial, every difficulty, 
Every challenge, everything that comes into my life that challenges my, my inclinations to apply my physical, my natural strengths to eliminate. I ought to rejoice in the things that exhaust me of all self-sufficiency so that I might know the sufficiency of Christ alone. That's what Paul said in regards to his thorn. And the Lord refused to remove it in that it drove him to a full dependence upon Christ. He says, well, if that's the case, I will therefore rather enjoy, rejoice in my thorns and in my afflictions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's how you have joy in the midst of trials. If that's what the trial is producing, and the Lord says the trial is necessary for the production of that and for that full dependency on me in which you will know strength and know fullness of joy, then let the, let the trials come through the gracious hand of our God to bring us to that place to where we could say with Paul, therefore, let the trials come. Because if through the trials I am made less dependent upon my own strength and my own flesh and more dependent upon Christ, therein lies my real joy. And I think that's what James means here. It's just stunning to me. He's going he's to lay down a lot of obligations, and they are very challenging. But I think if you don't get this one right, you're not going to endure the trials and the challenges and the struggles of putting into practice all that he says for, from here on in that letter, because this is central and key to that ability and that reality. I'm pretty sure that if I took a show of hands this morning and said, Whatever trial you've identified, are you joyful in it? And I think most of us would have to acknowledge, no, I'm, I'm really not. But I'd like to know, I'd like to know what it is to see that, face it head on, refuse to refuse to react instinctively out of my flesh and lean and trust fully in Christ to accomplish in me all that the trial is designed to do to the glory of God and to the fulfilling of my joy as belonging to Him. That would be the response we aspire to. Let it have its perfect result and the end of that is that we may be perfect. Some translations may were, use the word mature. That's the end of, of, this prison, of, this, of this endurance and having it work its work in us. The product of that is growing. It is Christian maturity. We grow in the faith. We grow in our dependence upon Christ. And we grow in our ability to recognize the efforts of the flesh and to immediately abandon those and cast those off as insufficient for the glory of God and for our own sustaining joy. Maturity. One of the reasons I think the church in our generation is so full of immaturity is because there is so, there is so little willingness to endure the trials. There's so willing, there's such an unwillingness to endure the suffering as from the providential hand of God to work out what God is doing in our lives. We don't like hurting, understandably so. But we don't like it to the point to where we disregard it as an instrument of Christ to bring us to a greater dependence upon Him wherein we find a greater joy. And so because we avoid it in every way and we run from it at times to get away from it and we try to escape it in every way we can, what we do is we, re we retard our own spiritual growth. That's why we do it all of our lives and we come to Jesus when we're 15 and when we get 90 or 80, we're not mature in Christ even yet because we have not 
yielded to God's providence of the circumstances in the world whereby he transforms us and grows us in our maturity. And when we are there in verse 4, that we may be, be, be made perfect or mature and complete. I love the word complete when it speaks of maturity because the implication is when we're, when we're not mature, there is an incompletion. There is, we are not fully complete. Now, I know there's a sense in which we'll not know that in its fullness until we're with the Lord. But as we're growing in maturity, we are being completed. All the things that are added to us as, I, as we grow. I think what's added to us is that dependency and the lack of self-sufficiency. And so we're maturing to that end and that we be complete and that in that maturity we will be lacking nothing in the midst of these trials. Can you imagine what a testimony it would be in the provinces where they were? If when their circumstances, whether it be poverty or mockery in public or, or a marginalization or a disregard or even outright persecution for the world that was bringing those things against them. Could you imagine the impact on that world if that Christian in the midst of those maintained and manifest openly that they had a joy unshakable? The world would have to recognize this is not originating with men. We may not know where they get that, but we know that it doesn't come from men, especially men who are sane. <laughs> These people are not insane. They have a joy in circumstances which should indicate in every way there should be no joy. <laughs> but yet they have this joy. Where does that come from? I think James is saying it comes from your master, bond slave. It comes from yielding to the master. It becomes from recognizing who the master is. It comes from recognizing that circumstances are not somehow outside the providential and sovereign hand of your God. And whatever they are and however they manifest themselves, they are, Romans 8, 28, for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. So on that basis and trusting that they are working out for my good, then my call by James here is to yield in the midst of those, patiently endure them, and let God have His work accomplished in me. Let Him produce in me perseverance and, and endurance which will have its perfect work in maturity and take me to the place that when the trials come that I'll be lacking in nothing in enduring those trials and like that all the way home where one day there'll be no trials uh, I'm encouraged uh, brother I asked brother Blake if I could share this but in our conversations with Caroline he was sharing with her he says someday and, and forgive me if I misparaphrase it a little bit but someday way down the road you may find that you've walked away from Christ or that you've sinned. In that day, don't look back at this day that you were baptized and conclude from that that you were saved. And the implication was that being saved implies an ongoing present obedience. If you, if you, want, to, if you want to affirm your election in that day, return to Christ. Endure. Repent, confess, turn back to Christ. Don't rest on the experience of yesterday. James, I think, is eminently practical in that he is exhorting now to an ongoing present tense obedience. Ongoing. 
Not resting on the obedience of yesterday as an assurance because if that obedience stops, then you have no assurance. We are to be faithful unto the end. Not resting on any one individual um, activity or one individual experience, but of a lifetime of obedience brought about and sanctifying by the Spirit of Christ through the truth of God's Word. So when Caroline and when Larry and when Blake and when you and I as Christians get all the way to our last day and we've been faithful throughout those years, we give God the glory. And we say to him in that day, thank you for the mercy that has held me fast and caused me to persevere unto the very last day of my life. Thank you for the affirmation that I belong to you through that repentance and through that confession, through that turning back to you day in, day out, all the days of my life to this very day. And now bring me home, Father, because I am yours. That's what I think Blake wants for his children, and that's what I want for every Christian here, and that's certainly what I want for myself. I don't want to rest on yesterday's obedience. And I think James is exhorting these Christians under trying circumstances to live out your faith and to recognize that your God is is operating sovereignly to bring about what he has caused to begin in you and your union with Jesus Christ. And so for that reason and because of that reason, count it all joy, brethren. Because the worst the world can send to you, send your way, is but an instrument in the hand of your Father to bring you into his presence ultimately. Amen. Let's stand together and pray. I want to share tonight... Uh, maybe as an introduction, but you may be thinking, well, Larry, how am I, how am I supposed to think like that? <laughs> Where is that going to come from? Well, James anticipates it because the very next verse says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. <laughs> That's what you need. That's what I need to think this way. And so join us tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for Eli and Caroline and their decision to um, follow you in baptism this morning. Lord, I do pray for them as well as the other children and for every Christian who, who is obedient in baptism that they would always understand that it is but one step of obedience. There are many more. There are manifold. There are a multitude of decisions ahead of them. And Father, in the weakness of our flesh, sometimes we'll make the wrong decision. But Father, I thank you that by your grace you hold us fast and in those days that you'll prompt the heart and move the heart to confess even if we run for a moment. Father, you will bring us to yourself. So, Lord, help us to be obedient in that day as well, all the way to the end of our days. Thank you for this book of James that reminds us that being Christian is not simply saying that we are, but living our lives in ways that would demonstrate it and would be in contrast to the way the world lives as well. I ask these truths to be brought to bear in the hearts of everyone in the room today, myself included. Lord, that by your spirit you may bring strong application to these truths in, the, in our current circumstances and the trials that we are enduring even now. In these moments of invitation, have your way, we ask in Jesus' name.